Hello, Caroline here. Just wanted to let you know that we had a few technical difficulties this week, so this episode might sound slightly different to you, but never fear, we still have all of that sweet, sweet roll-calling goodness, including a fantastic guest, some chat about how Hollywood presents American identity, and plenty of discussion of James Dean's scandalously unbuttoned shirt. Enjoy! Welcome to Roll Calling, a podcast about actors we love and the movies we love them in. I'm Caroline Sita, a film and TV critic who has a mind of her own. And I'm Ned Baker, a filmmaker and a legend in his own time. A great Texan, an outstanding American. Yes, my friends. Oh, man. Wow, that was incredible, Ned. I was not expecting that. One of my longest intros to date. Well-deserved for a lengthy movie. The way this podcast normally works is that Ned and I take turns curating a five-film miniseries starring an actor we love, but this cycle we've been switching things up a little bit for our series on James Dean, who only made three films in his lifetime. So far, we've looked at his leading man debut in East of Eden, his iconic role as Jim Stark in Rebel Without a Cause, both of which came out in 1955. And today we're wrapping things up with the last film Dean ever made, George Stevens' 1956 epic Western drama giant. Ned, I feel like you love a Western. Is this true? Do I ever? Yeah, I'm, I'm real hooked on Westerns. The last, uh, the last short film I made was Western, in fact, and I'd love to make a bunch more. Um, but I'd never seen this one, but uh, I can't wait to get into it. I know. I'm very excited to get into it as well. And to help us do it, we are absolutely thrilled to be joined by a wonderful guest. She's a pop culture critic whose work regularly appears at places like Pajiba, Vulture, RogerEbert.com, The AV Club, and Polygon. She is one of the best writers out there. She's Roxana Haddadi. Welcome to the show, Roxana. Thank you, guys. That that intro felt not true, but I appreciate <laughs> it. Thank you. It is true. That's what we're here. That's what we're here for, to hype up our guests because we only have the best. So Roxana, you've been you've been dropping some hints in our sort of behind the scenes discussions about sort of your love for James Dean. So I am dying to know, can you just like lay it on us? What is your relationship like to James Dean? Where does he fit in your sort of like pantheon of, of actors you love and appreciate? This is a really good question. And it's actually one that I thought about all day because I was trying to pinpoint, I was like, when did this start? Because <laughs> I remember... Like my childhood bedroom had Mm -hmm. many childhood through, you know, obviously like college had six James Dean posters that I recall. Yeah, it was pretty, pretty intense. There was like the film reel one where it was like Mm. pictures of him in different film reels. There was the classic like this pose still from Rebel Without a Cause. And so I actually have no distinct memory of the first time that I watched a James Dean movie. But I have a general sense that it must have been on PBS because my parents and I watched a lot of PBS growing up. Oh, cute. And yeah, very adorable. (laughs) And I also have this very distinct memory of my father telling me that he believed in God whenever he saw Elizabeth Taylor's face. Mm, that's lovely. So, wow. yeah. so yeah, so I definitely grew up with Giant, although I have no distinct memory of when I first saw it. Um, but I was very surprised as to how much I remembered and to how immediately my body just like 
reacts to James Dean on screen. Mm. <laughs> You're not <laughs> alone in that phenomenon. Yeah, it's gross, but I just admire <laughs> uh, very much his rawness and sort of his vulnerability and fragility. And now being a little bit older, probably from when I was a teenager and I saw these movies, I can sort of from a critical perspective say like, is he trying too hard? But that mm. was the point, right? Like that was the time, like everything yes. was big emotions and heightened energy. And so long answer to wrap it up. <laughs> I don't really have a memory of when it started, but I know that I had a period of my life when I adored him very much. Mm-hmm. And that doesn't really seem to have changed. Yeah. I had a similar experience for me. It was less the posters on the wall. I remember I had like a coffee table book, I think. And one thing Ned and I have been talking about a lot in the series is how much being a James Dean fan can be tied to just like appreciating these photos of him or this image of him that exists almost like separate to, or at least in addition to his film work. Mm -hmm. Was, was giant your main like James Dean movie? Were you equally a fan of rebel without a cause and East of Eden? I think my initial big thing was rebel without a cause Mm -hmm. yeah just as like a general rebellious teenager yeah i remember in middle school we went to california to visit some of my mom's family and i was like we have to go to the observatory can we go Mm -hmm. to the observatory Um... i want to go to the observatory and i don't think we did we went to the getty museum i think but anyway hadadi backstory um now, I think as I've grown a little bit older, I think I realize that I appreciate Giant the most mm-hmm. just because of how much I think just because of how much I personally gravitate to stories about America and mm-hmm. sort of the changing texture of America. And this is very much a Western that intentionally does that. And I can appreciate now rewatching it how much Dean is part of two Americas in that Mm -hmm. his performance and his character are very much still like a good old boy racist, but also sort of this face of the nouveau riche changing capitalism, America going in a different direction in terms of how it treats money and class. Mm -hmm. So I think giant now remains my favorite, but I think rebel without a cause was the gateway Mm-hmm. into Dean and very much just so much of his image I mean all of black and white photos mm-hmm. some of which we were trading on Twitter today yeah just his whole aesthetic and yes. I feel very old when I say this but like who now has that aesthetic? yeah yeah <laughs> like, I, I hate being dismissive of our generation because like I'm preemptively making myself a boomer but <laughs> Because everyone else is still ready to dismiss our generation. Yeah, I'm like, I can't believe I'm doing it to myself. But it's like, who has that mystique now? Like, it's not Timmy Chalamet as much as I adore him. It's not Timmy. Like, it's hard to think of who now has that same sort of very otherworldly presence, which everybody in this movie had. Mm -hmm. Yeah. Mm -hmm. No, Timmy is no Jimmy, for sure. No, and like, who's our Elizabeth Taylor? You know, like, so all these people Mm. that like, when we were looking at how old they were when they made this movie, it's like, I can't see any of our like current early 20s and early 30s actors doing this believably. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. It is a very different era that we are currently in for sort of like movie making and star making and celebrities in general. And yeah, it's interesting to think too about like how much of this is, I think, I mean, I think a lot of James Dean's persona is sort of 
you know, authentic in a way to his personality, but I'm sure also there was a lot of massaging by a studio that was eager to sell him. I'm sure. Yeah. Mm -hmm. And so that kind of, you know, ties into all the stars from this era in a way that maybe stars today feel more accessible to us. And therefore a little of the mystery is gone in a way. I want the mystery. I'm sick <laughs> of the accessibility. I don't want you to have social media. I don't need we don't to know want your relatable stars. Yeah, I don't <laughs> want that. Like, I'm very over that. And again, that probably makes me sound super cranky. But I would prefer I don't know your opinion about anything. Mm-hmm. And I like this hot take. Me. Like, you're just going to disappoint me. And I don't want to know that. I prefer to know nothing. And so that I can just view you as an aesthetic object. <laughs> Let let me objectify you. <laughs> it does feel like we do occasionally get a star who kind of purposefully shies away from the limelight in that way, but it is sort of rare. I, I mean, I think we, we've talked about the Heath comparison on this series. Yeah, Heath, Heath Ledger, Ledger feels like the closest thing we've had. And it is hard for me now to separate like how much of that is because of the sort of backward looking parallel of dying tragically too young. Mm-hmm. But there was a lot of there were a lot of parallels, I think, already. And I do think he was a little bit opaque publicly, but maybe mm-hmm. less so. I don't really remember. I wasn't obsessed with him at the time. I sort of had more of a, a later backwards looking thing. But we don't have anyone who's able to exist in quite the same with quite the same level of, yeah, as you say, mystique. We haven't really had any other James Deans. And it also feels like everybody else has to kind of live in the shadow. Like you can't have I another James Dean in a, in a post James Dean world. Yeah, everybody's a try hard. You can't can't recreate that. I mean, I don't know if we can ever recreate that like unique combination of seeming like he did not give a fuck at all and also seeming like he gave all of the fucks. So many fucks. He somehow walked that balance of like, I don't give a shit. And yet I care deeply, Mm -hmm. obsessively about this. And I don't know. I mean, maybe it is unfair of me to say like nobody does that. Because I think there certainly are actors that care, right? I mean, like, that's not what we're saying. But that specific, unique sort of all-American look coupled with, like, the Daredevil stuff and how brief his ascent and then unfortunate end were. All those things seem like a very American story of a very specific time, Mm -hmm. unlike we've moved past that time that time well i also wonder i wonder how much of it is tied to that you know this is the post world war ii sort of america becoming the dominant world superpower and american culture exploding in a way it hadn't before and we talked in our rebel without a cause episode about how much james dean's rise was tied into the sort of like rise of the concept of teenagers in general Mm -hmm. and i think he also brought this really interesting mix of like masculine energy but also feminine energy in a way that maybe hadn't you hadn't been allowed to have both of those things in any earlier period and so he happened to be right on the cusp of sort of all of these phenomenon and as you're saying you know history rolls on and things change and we have not had that same pivot point that has maybe allowed somebody to emerge in the way he has yeah i think his vulnerability felt very new at the Mm -hmm. time and i'm certainly not a like historical film scholar in that way but I do know that sort of that was a shift to be able to, you know, see him cry on screen and Mm -hmm. be that damaged and that vulnerable. I think that was all very new. And I also know that he was very much the kind of person that like people were pulled toward 
either in hating him and mm-hmm. thinking that he was an asshole, which I could completely believe, or in just thinking that he was somebody that you wanted to be close to. I mean, the person actually that I think is probably closest to James Dean is River Phoenix. That mm-hmm. feels like totally. Yeah, that feels like our closest, like rising star, somewhat damaged, cut very short. Mm-hmm. And it just feels like a waste. Yeah. Um, yeah. Well, I mean, yeah. that's the, that's, you know, a, a segue into Giant, which, as we said, is the last film that Dean made. And so the last image of him that so many people had, even though his image has endured so much. So let's jump into Giant more specifically. Uh, this is directed by George Stevens, based on a 1952 novel by Edna Ferber. So again, as with East of Eden, one of those, you're getting the movie not too long after the book has come out. Situations. Recent bestseller. Yeah, mm-hmm. recent bestseller. Yeah. This is a long movie, as as uh, I'm sure we all <laughs> experienced while watching it. Yeah, I'm so but... glad that you warned me after our last session, because I kind of have a bad habit of waiting until the night before our podcast and then popping it on after work. And I sometimes get out of work at 8.30 p.m. And I would have been in trouble if I waited till <laughs> last night. So thank you for the heads up. You would have yes. needed to do a self-imposed intermission. Yeah, probably. But I was okay. able to watch it straight through. Yeah, a very long movie without an intermission. It's three hours, 21 minutes. Unusual not to have an intermission. That was a specific choice by Stevens. Um, Interesting. But it basically tells, it's kind of set over 30 or so, 25 to 30 years or so. It's got mainly two intersecting stories. The main one is about this marriage between a wealthy Texas cattle rancher, Jordan Bick Benedict, played by Rock Hudson. He winds up very early into the movie marrying a strong-willed socialite uh, named Leslie Linton, played by the wonderful, impossibly beautiful Elizabeth Taylor. And then James Dean comes into this through a subplot uh, where he plays Jet Rink, the sort of uh, ranch hand who's very sort of surly, ambitious, a loner, Um, And he winds up becoming very unexpectedly one of the richest men in Texas when he strikes oil on this little plot of land that he has inherited from Vic's sister. And so we basically just follow these main characters for about three decades or so. And so they start as 20 somethings, they grow to be people in their fifties. And the final third of the movie sort of introduces this uh, new generation of Vic and Leslie's three sort of like teenage young adult kids and sort of how they factor into the you know, changing times of the 1950s. So uh, Roxanne has has given us a little bit of her history with Giant. Now, actually, along with Ned, this was also a first viewing for me. So Ned and I will have fresh first impressions to share here. So Ned, if I can, I'd love to throw it to you and just see what your first viewing of Giant was like. Well, I, I don't know what I expected this movie to be, but it wasn't this. I mean, the very first surprise came when I just saw the poster as I went to watch it online. I said, oh, this is a Rock Hudson movie. It says, I have only ever seen the, I think, very iconic frame of James Dean sitting in the car with his feet up on the seat or on the dashboard. So I just kind of assumed it was about like a, first off, I assumed that like many Westerns, it took place in the 19th century. It was about some sort of like young farmer who falls in love and, you know, fights some gun battles or something. And that it was, and that James Dean was the main character. I didn't expect him to be, third build. I did not expect it to be an epic in the sense of being a film that spans something like 40 years. And I went into it so fresh that I I found it took me a really long time, in one sense, halfway through the runtime, and in another sense, really all the way through the film to feel like I had a grip on what it was going to be doing. 
at first I was like, oh, it's good. It's okay. It's a romance between these two. And I'm like, oh, they're totally married. So it's just about, it's kind of like a Rebecca setup in, uh, it's like Rebecca in, in blue jeans in, in Texas. Right. With the, oh. the sort of, uh, little boy, surly spinster sister. Who yes, is exactly. Kind of messing things up for them. Yes. It's a good, it's a, it's a good old boy, Maxim de Winter with a, uh, I missed that she was the sister. I thought she was just like the housekeeper and that it was really just like, poor, and then when she died and I was like, he's really broken up. And he was like, my sister, I was like, oh, 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 sorry. <laughs> Basically, there's a lot of elements that we can get into that it took, it takes a long time through your first viewing to feel like you get a grip on. And I like one of the things is mostly that I just, I kept waiting for the movie to kind of clearly declare its heroes and villains. Mm. I was like, am I supposed to like this racist ass cowboy guy? You know, meaning Big Benedict, who is kind of like the main character. And and then I was like, James Dean seems like the good guy. Maybe it's a love triangle. Oh, no, he's... Uh, He's a little creepy now. Oh, he's like fully turning into an asshole. But even then, like it kind of defies that thing I was expecting. And certainly something that is part of the Western genre. I mean, particularly prior to the 50s, I feel like Westerns very often, you know, most of the Westerns I've been enthusiastic about are what I've only sort of recently learned are considered like anti-Westerns or Mm post-Westerns starting in the 60s on where it's all about like, moral gray area, no heroes and this sort of thing. But I think for the first half of the 20th century, there are the Western genres defined by a bunch of films that honestly I've never seen, which were a lot more about like a good guy in a white hat goes out and he saves a family from like an evil person in a black hat. And uh, it's pretty morally uncomplicated. So I thought it was interesting that in a way that feels true to life, And in a way that is kind of only possible when you push past an hour and a half, past two hours, past two and a half hours to just kind of like let these characters be and grow and have nuance and kind of defy categorization into good guy and bad guy. I guess you could say that James Dean's Jet Rink is kind of the antagonist of the film, but that's that feels kind of like an insufficient label for a lot of the movie, I would Mm -hmm. say. So I would say I found it very interesting. I am coming into this conversation, not sure. It, it feels right now like I would rank it third of the James of the three James Dean films for appealing mm-hmm. to me. But I also kind of like, you know, like, it's like episodes like our Green Knight episode. I'm like, there's just a lot I still kind of need to unpack. We'll see where I land by the, uh, the end of this conversation. We can give our rankings at the end. Well, I, in some ways had a similar experience to you. And I think in some ways had a, had a different one. I knew generally sort of what giant was about. I knew some of its, I knew it's setup. I knew it's themes, but I think similar to what we talked about in rebel without a cause where you can have an idea of a classic movie, but then when you watch it, the tone is just entirely something new. That was in t- that was exactly my experience with Giant. I felt like I it was going to be, I don't know, in some way more of like an outdoor Western adventure. And really what it is, is a family drama. Like what this was reminding me of more than anything else was This Is Us, the TV show This Is Us, that's sort mm-hmm. of about multi-generational family. You've got, you're really on that show, you're sort of watching young parents sort of grow into parents of adult children. And obviously this is us does the sort of timeline jumping, which giant doesn't do. But I think in terms of just looking at a multi-generational family story, that's not so much about plot or about good and bad. It's just sort of about the details of how people live their lives. And I loved this movie. I, I think it's by far my 
Rebel Without a Cause might be my favorite of the three and that I have so much like nostalgic affection for it, but I feel like Giant is the best of the three. Oh, uh, I was blown away really from the first shot of it's we get Rock Hudson in a cowboy hat on a train uh, out east where he's he's going out to buy a horse, although he ultimately comes home with both a horse and a bride. And, you know, it's just like beautiful pastoral imagery and upbeat music and rock cuts. And I was like, oh, I'm going to love this movie. And then it was just an upward climb of every scene got better and better. <laughs> and I am excited that I finally seen it and like mad that I have spent so much of my life not watching it because it's so good. It's like a warm blanket, man. Like yeah. I put it on and I was like, yes. That's that's so true. And that's not what I was expecting. I was expecting yeah. this to be more stressful in a way. And we talked about with East of Eden, that's kind of a very stressful family drama. Very and there's stressful. a lot of tortured characters and things are going wrong and some things go wrong in giant, but for the most part, it's sort of like pretty good people, you know, they're not, they're not outright villains and they're just kind of trying to do their best and they're navigating realistic family situations and it is comforting you're exactly right Arxana, in a way that i was not expecting it to be at all oh i did not feel warm blanket from oh. this maybe for oh. me i don't know for me it was it was i mean you said you said roxana one of the things that appeals to you about it is you know it being it's a story about america and it really is in a yeah. lot of ways that we can continue to dissect one of the ways yeah. in which it's a story about america is it is just rife with racism and toxic masculinity. Yeah. And I don't mean like a dusting yeah. on top. No, it's very it's much like, about you're yeah. living in a racist time. Mm -hmm. Yes. You're probably pretty fucking racist. Yeah. And so how are you being that. confronted on that racism? And that's what I'll say yeah. about Giant. And I'm sorry, I cut you off. No. But absolutely, I think it is a movie in which the characters are racist and the movie knows they are racist mm -hmm, and is mm -hmm. actively commenting on their racism. Yeah. And so I think in that way, it's comforting for me because I've watched it so many times and because it has like a very special nostalgia for me. But in terms of what the film is doing, I do think it is very intentional and critical of Texas. And the idea of like the Texan mystique mm -hmm. and all these traditional toxic masculine values. And I think in terms of like who are the good guys and who are the bad guys, I think the only real good guys are Elizabeth Taylor's character because mm -hmm. she's from the North. <laughs> so yeah, I mean, so she frankly, has to be good. There's yeah, no bad people good. from the There's North. There's no bad people from the North, but she very much is like the educated aware person coming into texas and being like wow you really treat everybody like trash that's weird so she's very much the hero and then eventually when we meet dennis hopper's character mm -hmm. he very much also is a hero but absolutely like rock hudson is somebody clinging to his old ways who doesn't understand why his wife talks back so much mm -hmm. and how fiery she is but he loves her regardless and so i think in terms of how complicated these characters are, in a lot of ways, it sometimes reminds me of A River Runs Through It in that everybody's sort of trying to do better. And mm -hmm. so I think that sort of appeals to me, that it feels like there is a movie where there is a lot of forward progress in terms of character development. And if there's not forward progress, if somebody isn't tangibly being like, oh, what I thought before was fucked up and now I want to be better, there at least is an awareness of, well, I think this way and I guess history is moving past me. Mm -hmm. And so in some ways it feels very 
again, sort of in terms of America, it is sort of comforting to me to see a film in which people either understand that the world is changing around them and accept it, or understand that the world is changing around them and try to meet it themselves. Mm-hmm. Um, so th- that is really what appeals to me about it. But I'm sorry, Ned. I just I <laughs> cut you off and then went on a big old tangent. But that's no, what we want sorry. all of our guests to do 24 <laughs> seven. So you have already met the brief entirely. Yeah. But Ned, how did you feel about the racism and toxic masculinity that I then talked about? Well, I found it difficult to watch just because you know, it's just, it's so ugly. It's so ugly. And it's, 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 it is cringe. Can, say, can I jump in just to do it for people that aren't Please. maybe like Ned and I have not seen this movie before, sure. but are listening yeah. to this podcast. So the main through line is really looking at the racism of sort of Anglo Texans, specifically against Mexican Americans that are frequently people that they're working with, or that are, you know, in their homes as housekeepers or, or people that are around. And there's this racism that's coming both from rich characters like Bic, uh, Rock Hudson's character. And then also and I think the movie is very smart in pointing this out from characters like Jet, who are also working class people who theoretically should feel aligned with other you know, working class people in their community. But because this is sort of how racism is designed to work, there is a way that that even people like Jet are aligning themselves with the rich white people rather than the solidarity with other I'm working saying. class people. And Elizabeth Taylor yeah. comes in and she's sort of the one to just point out this disparity and, and in small ways and sometimes big ways, try to step in and get better uh, medical care for the Mexican Americans that are living in a local village. And we sort of are just tracking this through line throughout the, you know, however many couple decades of this movie. Okay. Now now you're finally allowed to speak. The women have finished speaking and we will allow your masculine perspective to I hardly over. remember. I hardly remember. Yeah, as 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 masculine perspectives are want to try to do. Uh, gosh, I hardly remember what I was. You're saying, saying that the, it was very ugly to watch. You yeah. Thought. Well, yes, it was. I mean, which is true. I mean, certainly you don't. It's not. Yes, the part of watching people say slurs and then also you know the uncomfortableness of a 1950s movie just using brown face both on white characters and even on Hispanic actors as was sort of the trend at the time is. A certain mindset, I guess, to put yourself in. Sure. And that's kind of separate. That's that's an example of the movie doing something that because of the time it was made and it didn't have the awareness of that being problematic. There's a lot of brown face in this and we sure hate to see that. But separately, I mean, you know, I, I want to give the movie's credit that it is what it is doing is it intentionally continuing, as I say, not as a dusting on top, but repeatedly examining these large and small acts of racism, even from characters that are supposed to be your protagonists. And- it's, you know, it's just, it's tense for me to watch. I mean, you know, one of the very final scenes, they go into a diner that is, you know, we see, a, a you know, an umpteenth instance of people not wanting to serve the Benedict family because at that point, one of the children of the Benedict family has married a Juana woman, Juana, who is like uh, the child of the doc no not the doctor yes the child of dr I think she's Guerra. a friend of, i think she's working at the hospital i'm not sure she's related to the doctor in any but case he introduces her so basically because they are now you know there's a, a mexican born woman married into the family they're being asked to leave the diner and then other people are being thrown out and it's just watching like instance after instance is difficult to watch in a way where i'm not saying this is a fault of the movie but i would say i didn't come out feeling like, oh, I'm eager to watch that film again. I mean, Mm -hmm. I think that in the way it is, I just feel like long, 
long quality movies just occupy this thing where like, I feel like you want to go years before between watching them <laughs> and then you revisit them and you see all these new things. I mean, I can imagine, I can kind of imagine watching this movie as a child. Another sort of comparison would be Gone with the Wind, although I think mm-hmm. Gone with the Wind sort of conspicuously lacks some of that progressive desire to address and examine racism. It actually, I mean, I haven't seen Gone with the Wind in a long time, but in terms of being a large scale sort of long time American epic, I can see this being a movie that, you know, is on TV and you watch as a kid and you maybe digest parts of it, but then, you know, it developing with you. So I guess to, you know, to, to finally put a button on the point I was starting to make, I think I thought the movie was good, but I wouldn't say that I found it comforting in the same mm. way. I actually think one of the things I found comforting about it was I was kind of shocked by how progressive it was. Mm-hmm. Again, I sort of knew in my image of this movie that it ended with a confrontation over racism in a diner. Oh, did I was you? not anticipating that that was like going to be so much of a central through line of the movie. Like you're saying, I was kind of expecting, oh, that would be a dusting throughout. But it really mm-hmm. that uh, the through line about racism and then also this whole through line about uh, Leslie Elizabeth Taylor just her place as a woman within this Texas society and how Mm -hmm. much she is expected to be the quote unquote little wife and, you know, not join the men when they talk about politics and, and be kind of there to be cute and raise the kids and, and not speak too much and how much she pushes back against that while also maintaining, she's not regretful about who she's married. In fact, she's like very dedicated and loyal to him, but she's equally dedicated to the integrity of carving out her own space within that marriage. Mm-hmm. And I found that in a way I find people like having a lot of integrity to be incredibly comforting. So yeah. I actually think in how blatantly this movie was openly tackling those themes, I like couldn't, I kind of couldn't believe how progressive it was in a way. Yeah. And I think it's, it's very progressive in how it treats her in that she is completely unapologetic about who she is. Like once she sort of understands Texas, you have that great scene of her sassing him at the dinner table when they meet mm-hmm. has sort of immediately, and for me, again, believably, which is probably tied into my, you know, childhood watch of this, but her, <laughs> you know, falling for him immediately for whatever reason, engineering them falling in love over like 24 hours. I love <laughs> it. And then when she winds up in Texas, it's like from the get go, it takes her maybe a couple of days to adapt herself to what Texas is going to be like, to stand up for herself, to lose, who is Bix, like, terrible. Lose is the only straight antagonist, I think. Mm. She sucks. She's the worst. She, I mean, these are all very broad things. I think you're right that that's how she presented. My natural instinct to love a surly spinster made me love her more than I think the movie wanted me to Yeah, I think the movie is the, I think the movie makes her the only, like, very clear-cut antagonist Mm. in that, Mm. She attempts to like control Bic and control Leslie and aligns herself with Jet and is mean to the Mexican-Americans, et cetera, et cetera. But like from the beginning, Leslie, like you said, does not back down about who she is or about her loyalty to her husband or her loyalty to herself. And then eventually her loyalty to her children. Mm -hmm. And I Mm -hmm. think Taylor sells as best as she can sort of these 30 years of being this woman who stood by her husband's side and then this woman who stood up for her children and who realized that the world was changing and that, you know, her humanity and integrity and dignity would guide her through that. 
Mm-hmm. Um, and so on the one hand, like I love all those things about this movie, but then on the other hand, it is very much still like the early 20th century narrative of like accept people because it's like look at how hard they work and like look one of them married into your family and it's it's certainly not like any of the mexican-american characters are really Mm -hmm. characters like in fully three-dimensional ways like juana's big scene is that she gets turned down in a beauty salon you know so like and then rescued by her husband rescued by her white husband so in that way certainly it is a product of its time Mm -hmm. but also like we're still getting movies now like green book so part of me is like well Oh, we I feel we haven't moved past that narrative, unfortunately. Mm-hmm. I totally feel like if you made this movie today, 65 years later, people would be like, this is such cynical, woke left propaganda. Like the world's not so bad. You know, yeah, I, I just feel like I'm startled that a movie from 1955 was so unapologetically saying, like, look at America. America is filled with racism from top to bottom. Yeah. I it's think surprising. I think if you made this movie today, it would get hailed as being a progressive masterpiece, which I mean almost less as a compliment to this movie and more of a critique of how not far enough we've come in our culture, yeah. our pop how culture today. Yeah. Progress. Yes. Yeah, that's kind of what can, I'm saying. I think yeah. you can yeah. make a movie that is about racism, but no characters of color are actually the center of that movie. And that movie mm-hmm. would get hailed as being very progressive. And that's the thing where it's like, okay, I can see within the context of the 50s, that is pretty progressive for as limited as it is. Uh, but I think shocking. it's a shame that by 2021, we have not gotten further than that in so many ways. Yeah. Yeah. I mean, that diner scene could still play today. Oh, 100%. Every, almost a, everything about this movie, I feel like, could play yeah. today. I mean, obviously, yeah. the, you know, the brown face aside, but mm, even still. Yeah, we're not strictly over that, are we? No, no. Uh, Javier Bardem in those pictures for Dune, mm. uh, like his natural skin tone, I'll just say questionable. That. Yeah. yeah, and I think actually one of the reasons that our pop culture does not move forward as quickly as I would like it to is because. I think there's this false narrative out there that just like every old movie is racist and sexist. I think that's a, that's a, that's a frequent critique I hear from like non-film people, but honestly, sometimes from film people as well, who are like, oh, it's from the, it's from the old days. It's from the fifties and sixties. It was terrible for women. It was terrible for people of color, like just throw it all in the trash. And I'm like, I think if you actually dig into a lot of this text that is not true but we've written this narrative that like oh we weren't progressive until like 10 years ago so we don't really need to push ourselves far because we're just starting to explore these ideas for the first time i just like want to show everyone giant and be like look at this like if they could do this in 1956 we can do more today in our art the one that i think of most frequently it's a lot more recent but like 1992's thelma and louise is like oh Mm -hmm. we were really already having this conversation about like rape culture and believing women and like now we're just having this conversation again as if it's the first time and then we act like it's new it's like ooh, in a post me too movement this new movie plays differently and it's like does it or <laughs> did we know your history know these things were bad before yeah. yes they very much always are those very terrible tweets that go viral they're like i've never watched a movie before star wars and it's like a you're dumb and <laughs> b and b absolutely like m- movies from the 40s 50s 60s fuck like 20s and 30s like mm-hmm. yes absolutely there were not many roles 
for people of color, like I, as a brown person, cannot argue that there were. But like, stop pretending that there are a lot now. Like, I guess right. that's my very yeah. cynical take is like, there really are not a lot now. So to look backward and like pat yourself on the back and be like, mm, actually we've progressed incredibly far is like, we haven't. Mm-hmm. And you're denying yourself of like these beautiful, like epically made films. And I think that also is so much, again, to sort of explain comforting. <laughs> I feel like yeah. that is what is very comforting for giant just from like a filmmaking perspective oh it's gorgeous yeah it's just that it's gorgeous and i think i like these are the movies that i sort of grew up on like this and like david lean movies and so i think i just naturally really react to these like look at how many moving parts and effort and like real life effects and sets and production design had to go into making this and just from that perspective i think giant is so impressive mm-hmm. um and I just, you know, I don't know where my like fascination with like Texas and the West came from, but it's probably movies like this (laughs) that I probably saw way too early. Yeah. And this movie, I think at the time and maybe still now was really hailed as a, like, I don't know, an, uh, an emblem of Texas. Like, I think Texas really embraced this movie actually in a way they hadn't with the book. Mm -hmm. Uh, The book I think is even more cynical. Yeah, like in the book, the diner scene, there's no fight. They just go into a diner. They're rejected because the people that own the diner are racist and sort of like, that's just the end. So mm-hmm. it's more honest, maybe in a way about mm-hmm. um, the reality of the situation. And the movie, I think to its credit, does not just be like one heroic guy saved the day and racism right. is over. The movie's doing something more interesting. But I think the movie is striking a slightly more heroic tone, which is probably why it was so embraced by Texas. There were also, so they filmed on location for five and a half weeks in Marfa, Texas, which at the time Mm. had a population of 5,000 people, Mm -hmm. relatively small. It sounded like the whole cast was just like losing their minds because there's nothing to do in this small Texas town, except for Rock Hudson and Elizabeth Taylor would get together and like drink chocolate martinis every night because they just that was what they you know had to do for fun i also assume everybody was sleeping together because i just assume that about all old timey this is also like a controversy so i was getting into real like behind the scenes sort of gossip stuff Mm -hmm. um there was a definite distinction there were a lot of people that didn't like each other on the set which i will Mm -hmm. also add they were shooting in texas in the summer where it could get to like 120 degrees at times so i'm like of course no one liked each other everyone would have been miserable on this yeah the way the way it kind of divided up was that Elizabeth Taylor had a wonderful friendship with Rock Hudson and that would continue throughout her life. I actually hadn't realized that the part, a big part of the reason she herself got so involved in um, AIDS activism as she famously was, was because of Rock Hudson specifically and their sort of lifelong friendship that started here. And then Taylor also had this sort of different kind of closeness with James Dean Uh, but then Dean and Hudson didn't like each other. There was rivalry there. So a lot of gossip columnists spun this is like, ooh, was Elizabeth, you know, having an affair with both of them? And that's why they didn't like each other or something like that. It seems like, I mean, who the hell knows who was sleeping with who, but it seems like more of the stories are leaning towards everyone was just friends. I mean, Rock Hudson was also gay, although he was married to a woman at one point, but it, I think it would really whatever narrative you want to graft onto this could probably be justified in some way. Um, Seemed like a lot of it was working styles too, because again, it felt like, yeah, like all of them came from like different schools of acting. And of course, Dean being the outlier Mm -hmm. in terms of how he approached work, whereas it always felt like Hudson was way more of like your straight by the book 
professional. And so interestingly, that sort of plays out in the film's narrative Mm -hmm. itself, which might be one of those things that helped that they sort of hated each other. (laughs) Well, I was thinking that too. I'm like, what's a chicken or the egg of, do you dislike each other in that case, the character? Or is it because your characters are not supposed to like each other? You sort of just naturally maybe are not bonding in the same way behind the scenes. Yeah. Certainly. I think given the situation, it seems very unlikely that as things got off to a bad start between James Dean and Rock Hudson, it seems very unlikely that James Dean thought to himself, I better try to patch things up with this guy. (laughs) Yeah. That's true. I'm sure that did not come to him as an idea. He probably at the very least said like, well, fuck him. I'm, you know, we're at odds in the movie. I'm just going to lean in with that. We talked a a decent bit about this kind of dynamic last week with our East of Eden episode and how you had Raymond Massey being a classical, older, working actor, traditionalist rep guy and James Dean as his method acting son. And then having totally different acting styles, causing them to have all this behind the scenes tension, which, you know, erupts on screen. And I'm, mm-hmm. I'm feels like a similar dynamic here. Although mm-hmm. I don't think we have here the method acting director, particularly trying to fan those flames, but maybe right. he had a kind of a laissez-faire attitude about it, kind of just let it go forward. So I think that maybe the biggest tension on set was between Dean and Stevens, George Stevens, the director. Mm. And one, so one of the big dynamics here was that you have with East of Eden and Kazan, and then with Rebel Without a Cause and Nicholas Ray, I think those are very much actors, directors who really focused Dean and his process sort of in their way of shooting the film. George Stevens was not like that. He was famously just known for just like, he would just shoot tons of coverage and then he would find his film in the edit. And so they took like almost a full year just to edit this movie. And I think that this was a process that frustrated kind of all of the actors because it was a thing where they would do lots of takes, but he wouldn't be like giving them notes or doing things to work on. And he wouldn't really be in communication with them. It was just sort of, you know, one of those act- one of those directors that's a little more like, you know, actors are my props within the movie and, uh, they're, my and tools they're here. And, exactly. Yeah. So he was much more like that. And this just doesn't jive at all with Dean's style of acting, which involves a lot of intense, like, preparation. And I think you can either read Dean's behavior on set as like, oh, he's just an asshole punk. Or I think to some degree, you know, he's a person that has like a long and intense process to get into character. And there was a story about, you know, he got called to set three days in a row, but they never ended up using him. And so like, that's frustrating for him to have done all of this prep work and then not be used or to have all this prep, you know, just, he was not being sort of at this, he was not at the center of the production in the way that he he had been on his earlier film. So that was very frustrating. The other real dynamic here is that when Dean signs on to this movie, he's really kind of like a nobody, like a very early up and comer. And I think he's thrilled to be the third lead to these bigger names. But by the time they start filming this movie, East of Eden has just come out like a couple weeks ago. And that's really like exploded his stardom. And he is actually just, he literally comes like from the set of Rebel Without a Cause. He basically films these movies back to back. And he only had time to film it because Elizabeth Taylor was pregnant with her second child. So they had to push back the production of Giant a little, by a couple months. And that allowed him to film Rebel Without a Cause in between. So Mm. I think you have the energy of Dean signing up to be the third lead when that seems really cool. Then by the time they go to film it, he's like, oh, I'm just the third lead, you know, like a little bit of that attitude of like, shouldn't I be a little more central here? Yeah. So I think that all of that tension is in the pot along, I will just say with the 120 degree days, like, I feel like that cannot be overstated enough. There was a, a, a story that you mentioned on our Dev Patel series, Caroline, about mm-hmm. him talking about working on The Last Airbender and what a miserable experience that was for him as an artist. I mean, he certainly has none of the brashness of uh, the way Dean seems to be in public, but 
but just sort of realizing with a project he took early in his career, like he didn't want to work on that kind of project and didn't want to work on that style of process. And so he doesn't, and he goes and he does other things and is now finding the things that work for him. And with James Dean, maybe that, maybe you wouldn't see him in these kind of large epics or mm-hmm. things where he's third build or working with directors like George Stevens, but we'll never know. Cause he's like dead a month later. Yeah. Yeah. He, he died in his car crash, like a week or two after he had wrapped his scenes oh, on here, wow. actually the last scene in the movie where he is this is older, older jet who's sort of giving this drunken speech alone in this giant ballroom. And Dean had filmed that, but he was so like mumbly and quiet that the plan was sort of to have him come in and do like ADR or looping for the dialogue. But then he dies before they're able to do that. So they bring in this actor uh, named Nick Adams, who is friends with James Dean. And so that last, the last sort of shots of Dean are actually somebody else doing the dubbing. I mean, it's mostly still a mumbling, drunken monologue. Yeah. Um, but yeah, it's just interesting to think about even his last images are tied up with this other actor in a way. But yeah, I want to, let's, let's talk more about Dean in particular, because that's what we're here to do. So Roxana, what do you like, what do you make of this Dean performance in particular? We know you, you and I are very bonded on our love of giant, but how does this Dean performance work or not work for you? Um, I think it simultaneously works a lot. And then there are some moments where it doesn't work for the most part. I think he really nails the energy of somebody who is a striver and who feels like he has not gotten what he is due. And so that feels, at least for me, very different from Rebel Without a Cause and East of Eden, which I think are way more similar mm-hmm. in being about like young people who have not found their place and are sort of struggling for like truth and integrity and all these like big existential questions, which come with trying to figure out the kind of adult you're going to be in giant. He really is already playing an adult. Like theoretically, these people are in their early twenties, mid twenties, they've settled in careers or in families And so I very much buy this sort of older version of this character who sort of hates their life and hates Mm -hmm. their circumstances, but can't imagine a way out of them. But then I think when Elizabeth Taylor enters the picture, I just think that she and Dean have such fantastic chemistry. So good. So good that I, I just think that he does his best work against her mm-hmm, or alone and most of the film really is at least in terms of his role either with her or alone and then some of the stuff that doesn't work for me as well is I don't think he is as believable in terms of becoming an older person mm. like I don't really buy him as the older jet so mm-hmm. much and that's sort of why the like engagement scene doesn't entirely click for me but pretty much everything with elizabeth taylor like the ride back when he basically is like mm-hmm. hey you're really hot but like don't tell your husband <laughs> i said you're really hot <laughs> <laughs> and then the tea scene like i love mm-hmm. all of the details of the tea scene. scene and how he reacts to like the production design element in it where it's like oh yeah there's that picture of you I cut out from the newspaper and oh yeah those are like my books so that I can speak English better and maybe like converse with you like I just think he really guides you through that scene and responding to what Taylor is Mm -hmm. doing Mm -hmm. she's so precise and so focused and he is just this 
I don't even know, just like this bundle of nerves, just like yeah. so much raw energy trying to contain himself. Yeah. And so I just, I really, I love that dynamic. And I think maybe I also don't like him as much later on. And this is just selfish because I really do not like the actress who plays Luz too. Oh, interesting. The daughter, yeah. the sort of youngest daughter of Vic yeah. and the uh... Yeah. And, and I don't know if it's like a character thing or an interesting thing. But she was also an actor studio uh, trained actor. Carol Baker is her name. Yeah. So she so studied sort of the same method that Dean did. Yeah. So I don't know why I don't buy mm-hmm. those scenes as much, but there is something about the engagement scene that just does not click for me necessarily. Mm-hmm. But earlier than that, I think he is exceptional at providing like all of this tension in their marriage and also again when we're talking like westerns embodying these like big images that are so emblematic of this genre like climbing the windmill stomping around the land yeah like being bathed in the oil all this stuff that once you watch a giant you're like oh that's what there will know be blood will do was doing like (laughs) okay cool yeah but so uh, for the most part i think that he is exceptional and I don't know if this is my favorite performance Mm -hmm. East of Eden might be my favorite performance but I think that he works very well against Hudson and Taylor and I I I certainly can't imagine anybody else in any of those roles Mm -hmm. Ned I want to get I want to get your thoughts on Dean as well, but I did just want to read this one quote from Elizabeth Taylor that was talking about sort of her bond she had with Dean, which I think actually the bond that in real life Taylor and Dean had almost feels similar to the weird bond that Leslie and Jet has and uh, have yeah. in the movie. Yeah. And uh, Taylor said that she and Dean would uh, sit up sometimes until three in the morning and he would tell me things about his past, his mother, his minister, his loves. And then the next day he would just look straight through me as if he'd given away or revealed too much of himself. It would take maybe a couple of days before we'd get back on friendship terms. He was very afraid to give of himself. So there's this weird push pull where Dean wow. will like sort of have these moments of intense vulnerability and then like regret it and sort of pull away. And I, I think kind of Jet, the character is the same way in that he does feel like he's yearning for connection with Leslie or then eventually with, with Leslie's daughter, but then also is regretting ever expressing vulnerability. And it's this like fascinating push pull. Yeah. And, and uh, Liz Taylor, like her character seems extremely well-adjusted and patient. Mm -hmm. Yes. And willing to see the best in people. Right. So yeah. I also want to point out, like we do, I feel like on this podcast, we've been like, well, James, he was only 24. Like, you know, he was young. That kind of justifies some of the behavior. Liz Taylor was also 23 years old and already had two children and was very responsible. So it's not like you have to be irresponsible when you're in your twenties. So I don't want to give, you know, James in too much leeway when there were other people who were maybe keeping it together a little more. But Ned, what do you think about the Dean, the Dean performance? Uh, I think it's terrific. I love it. I think it is so interesting it is just a very interesting character in the way, as I mentioned, like I felt like I was having a hard time getting a rope around, like what I was supposed to think be, and who I was supposed to around. getting my little, uh, like a uh, rope trick lariat around like what to make of this character. He's probably the one who most changes and occupies different roles. I mean, particularly because we see, as mentioned, like he has this kind of meteoric rise, you know, the first scene of this movie that I think I really, really leaned into is one in which I see him as the clear protagonist, which is when Bick and his like good old boys are trying to get this piece of land off of Jet that Luz has left for him. And I, I didn't see Luz as, I think as much, maybe I also just sort of felt like the hard-edged woman in cowboy boots 
Uh, I found her a little bit sympathetic, although she's like kind of such a jerk. I kind of thought she would have a redemption arc. Instead, she just gets bucked off a horse, which she abuses and then dies. Yes, but we she abuses the horse. Can we make yes, that clear? It is that's bad. true. That's she true. She abuses the horse, and, and somehow even worse than that, she's like abusing the horse because she's mad at Leslie at Elizabeth right. Taylor's character, yes. which really it's feels just... like misplaced anger at a yes. horse. <laughs> yeah, but she gets bucked off and dies. Uh, but I I felt we were supposed to feel her leaving land to Jet to be a sympathetic thing, and him to be a sympathetic character. Mm-hmm. And anytime you know, I think it just is. Uh, if a bunch of like white wealthy landowners try to get something off of you, like don't give it up. I, I love that scene of them being like, we'll take the piece of land because because Bick is just like, I want to keep I want to keep all my land for me. They're like, right. it's probably worth 500, maybe 600. Just take our word for it. But we're going to generously give you 1200. And he says, I think I'm going to gamble along with Liz. I think I'll keep it for myself. And it's kind of like a, you know, where I was still trying to figure out my footing in this. I was like, I cheered for him. I'm like, yeah, dude, keep it. Mm -hmm. And then when he gets oil, you're like, keep it. And then in an awesome, scary scene, he drives his oil covered truck and his oil covered body up to their like white pillared front porch and is like, fuck all of you. I'm coming for your asses. I'm, I'm rich as hell. The energy. I'm so yes. rich. Yes. He's like, now that I'm rich, I can finally tell you all how much I hate you and also openly hit on Leslie in front of everyone that she knows because yes. like, you can't touch me anymore. Well, it's an interesting, it's it's kind of like, it's a roller coaster ride of sympathy because I'm like, I am very inclined to see someone who's been poor and trodden on basically having the power to say an F you to the wealthy people who have always looked down on him. I'm like, this is triumphant, but he's got this like manic predatory air and he turns to Leslie and is like very rapey. Uh, And it's sort of clear, you know, early on, I wondered if we were going to be, I kind of thought this might be a love triangle movie. Mm -hmm. Which is not a, you know, I think an like maybe it should be. Honestly, like I if hot it, James Dean wants to sleep with you, like who, would, all, who, would, who would be wrong no? to say no? Who yeah. would say no? But I think it is sort of like a romantic platonic love triangle movie mm-hmm. because I think mm-hmm. that Leslie does sympathize with him. Yeah. And like, again, like sort of we all do, like react to him being somebody who wants to be theoretically a better person. But mm-hmm. I think it's very interesting that the way that he becomes a quote unquote better person is like becoming rich and then just being racist. Cause yeah. like, I don't think that he's, I don't fully remember if he is blatantly racist before he becomes rich. Yes, I think that he, he right. Cause he doesn't understand why she would want to go see where everybody else lives. And she's yeah. like, why don't yeah. the other people around here like you pull themselves up? And he's like, right. don't because them they're them. right. Cause I'm yeah, white. Exactly. Like, yes, uh, yes, yes. And then it carries over. Yeah. So basically that's the last time we see him in his like the last moment before. And he, he attacks Bick then and punches him. And then when he goes off, the next time you see him, he's like wearing his fancy suits and has this hideous little mustache and, uh, or maybe we like the mustache. I don't know. Thoughts? <laughs> mustache is bad. Mustache is very bad. <laughs> okay, there we go. It was really giving me like Leo DiCaprio vibes. I was <gasps> like, did Leo style his older self, his current day self after James Dean as old jet rink? I feel like I really offended you, Roxana. <laughs> uh, unpack your gasp there, Roxana. I love Leo. I mean, oh, I, I don't mean it as an insult to Leo. I just feel like yeah. he is styled the slicked back hair, sometimes interesting facial hair choices. You don't agree? 
I Leos and those people again. I don't want to think about Leo as a person. No, I'm sure that Leo not. as a person is like <laughs> we want really, to think of him on that Titanic ship. Just want to think of Leo <laughs> in all the roles in which I've loved giving us him. the little champagne toast and yeah. Great I want that. I want that Leo. But here's what I'll say about Leo, and this is terrible or mm-hmm. whatever. Mm. Leo either has the best lawyers in the world. Mm. Or maybe Leo is not as scuzzy as we think. I cannot decide which it is. Because you would think Leo would have scandal after scandal, but somehow unscathed. Yes. I don't know. I can't tell. It is a Schrodinger's cat of maybe we just shouldn't open the box. (laughs) Right. Like maybe the pussy posse is just incredibly lame. Like, (laughs) yeah, maybe it's like a high school. It's it's like the high school nerds formed that gang. And (laughs) yeah, like actually sleeping with you. Like I cannot, I cannot tell. But, this is yeah. further fodder that we need to do a Leo miniseries at some point, yeah, both to talk Leo. about my love of Titanic and to try to get to the bottom of his behind the scenes. Well, uh, yeah. we're going to meet soon and discuss the 2022 season of okay. Roll Calling. So watch this space. <laughs> yeah. But so to to sort of finish this, this idea of like he then goes on, Jet goes on and for the back third of the movie, I think pretty squarely functions as an antagonist in the way that he is now. Well, he's really like their frenemy. Mm-hmm. He is. Yeah, it's a very because, gossip girl. Yes, I mean because rich he's people like, with their own private planes, but they're they're all so fine. They're all in the one percent, but they yeah, have these in, inner oh, rivalries so between them. Funny, the sense it's of very them. succession. I think. Yeah. Yes, yes, yeah. too. It's yeah. very yes. It's very succession. It's very. I, I haven't watched Dallas, but I feel like this is what Dallas has got to be. Very. I think Dallas was kind of based on this yeah, oh, movie in oh, a way, go. or yeah. inspired by yeah. it. Yeah, yeah. The, the idea of the the Benedicts is feeling like they're punching up, but they own an airplane. But he owns an airport. Right. So, right. you know, right. But yeah. he at the end, you know, by the end, he basically is like built himself this like, I don't know, Citizen Kane-esque like palace of wealthy loneliness. And he kind of looks like a melting corpse. Mm-hmm. I have to say, Roxana, I don't I kind of like that scene, the engagement scene okay. in the bar. I kind of like his old man style I, I think he i don't know what he looks like if it's like a batman villain or like a J- james <laughs> bond henchman or something he's just got this weird like, like penguin yeah he's yeah. just got this really fascinating scuzzy like sitting behind his dark glasses i think he's pretty well transformed and my impression is that i think it it just came as kind of a cool surprise because my impression was was that this is a guy who made three movies in his life in which he was a young hot person Mm-hmm. So to see him become kind of like this uh, decaying rat figure, uh, kind of like sh- like shrinking into his tuxedo and like at the in his final sequence, just like disgustingly intoxicated. Yeah, uh, that's fair. Yeah. But it's kind of like it's kind of cool to see him in that. I mean, I'm the sort of like Dean hotness is a separate thing from his performance that I mentioned unpacking. And I'm like, is it kind of hot? Is he kind of hot in his like old weirdness? I will say 100%. I would still smash. Like, like that is right, like right. inarguable. Well, this is yeah. why I compare it to Leo. Like I think that yeah. there is something about an Unfortunately, older... I would still smash. So <laughs> right, right. yeah, I feel yeah. you. Yeah. And, and even in the end, I think, you know, as you've mentioned his like vulnerability and, and generally speaking about vulnerability in his career and him appearing vulnerable, there is also vulnerability in playing this like ugly even like physically ugly a sort of a character and and it's an interesting he's hard to even categorize as just a villain at that point partially i like the sort of note 
in that engagement scene when he says like what she asks is this a proposal and he goes what do you what do you want you want me to say something you can laugh at mm-hmm. and we just see like he's just still totally he never alone. like bucked his insecurity he's alone and yeah. he's like self-hating even though he's like basically surrounded himself with all these like sick yes fans. men exactly yeah, yeah sick events yeah. yeah yeah 100% he is a tragic fuck up and i think again this is sort of like the film, as you've said, Ned, sort of like refusing these very easy protagonist antagonists outside mm-hmm. of Leslie, because like I feel very sad for Jet in that yeah. final mm-hmm. moment where he is openly weeping about a woman he loved that he'll never have, yeah, and how much she exemplifies like all the stuff that he wanted, like wealth, class, and acceptance like mm-hmm. she's the only person who seemed to actually accept him and i know that luz did but i think luz accepted him for the utilitarian purpose that he provided mm-hmm. whereas it seemed like leslie accepted him as he's accepted everybody else just because he's a person mm-hmm. and so i think that he really responded to that and so there is something very deeply sad in those final moments so i think at least for me emotionally i swing back to being around like oh that sucks and that's sad and like I feel bad and then on the flip it's like you do have the diner scene where Bick stands up for Juana and there's this fight and he gets his ass kicked or whatever but then the next scene is him and Leslie at home and their Mm -hmm. two children their two grandchildren are in separate like bassinets or whatever Mm -hmm. yeah like little cribs yeah and Bick still says that terrible thing about mm-hmm. one of his grandchildren, mm-hmm. which yeah, like uses a we, slur. Yeah, uses a I slur. I was wondering to, about that yeah. moment. If that was, I don't. I, I'm very curious how that moment would have played in 1956. If it would have mm-hmm. been like, ooh, we find it like, oh, how how like quirky that he still says that, but clearly he loves his his grandchild because it feels like a moment where we are s- within the context of the movie, still supposed to be on big side i actually from a 21st century point of view i was like it honestly kind of feels honest that this guy is always going to be racist even mm-hmm. when he is less yes. racist like there's something yes. about that that i'm like well yeah he's not going to transform like right his, his the people in his family that are of mexican descent are going to be putting up with shitty microaggressions for their entire lives like that is kind of honest and i almost appreciated that mm-hmm. honesty, but I don't know if the movie meant it, <laughs> it meant it as a critique of him or just meant it as, oh, it didn't even occur to us that this would be at this point right. a not charming thing for him to say. Is that kind of what you meant, Roxana, when you were talking about people who are like, I see the world changing and I accept it, even if I can't bring myself all the way? Yes, that's sort of how I view him to be. Like, I think Elizabeth Taylor's character, I think Leslie sees the world changing is like, I'm going to adapt myself to this. Mm-hmm. And I think she clearly is the parent who like accepts what their son decides to do, like that he wants to be a doctor. Like she accepts that he's marrying Quana. Like she embraces the grandchild. I think she is like, I'm going to change myself to be this person whereas I think that Bick is like well I guess the world's changing around me (laughs) you know like I think that he like you said like I think that he accepts them or whatever and like will go to blows to defend them and defend his family name but I do not think he ends up in the same place which like you said might be the more honest Mm -hmm. interpretation of that character it's also because he doesn't quite understand, even at the end, 
and this maybe ties into the Jet thing too. It's like when Jet is trying to win over Leslie, he thinks I need to become rich because she married Vic and she must have married him because he's rich. And so that will make her like me. But right. really, I think what Leslie is drawn to more than anything else is like a sense of integrity and what she ultimately hails Vic for, even though he's like, oh, how embarrassing that I lost this big fight where I was trying to fight this racist diner owner. And it's embarrassing to me that I wasn't able to physically win that fight. And she's like, I actually think that's the most heroic thing you ever did because just in standing up to fight this fight and not just for your own family, but also for this other group of people that walk into the restaurant, like you're sort of taking the fight beyond your immediate relatives. That's what she finds so heroic. And I think what's tragic about Jet is that he doesn't understand what she's actually looking for. And so he's like, I don't understand now that I'm wealthy, why she's not coming to me or why, you know, I'm not very happy in the way I expected to. It's because in becoming wealthy, he either has lost or at least not gained any more integrity. And so that does kind of leave him just completely on his own but do you think Bic gets it either because he recurringly says to Leslie like you confound me yes and I don't (laughs) think he gets it all because he's like even if I live to be 90 like I'm never gonna get what you like right it feels it's interesting because he has well he doesn't get into a fight but there is a moment there's a moment earlier when it starts with the sequence you mentioned where Jordan the second Dennis Hopper Jordy Jordy. Baby Dennis Hopper. Baby Dennis Hopper. 19 years old when they made this movie. Uh, So and so so graceful and soft. So good in this movie. Like unreal. Yeah. Yeah. Great Dennis Hopper performance. So so Juana is denied service in a very passive aggressive, microaggressive way at the beauty parlor, which leads to sweet baby Dennis Hopper saying, I'm going to stand up and challenge Jet Rink. Again, maybe doing something that is not the best actual solution, but going out, grabbing Jet in the middle of this banquet hall and saying, like, put him up. Jet then, like, slugs him a couple times. So then Bick takes Jet in back and is like, I'm going to fight you for this and ends up not fighting him because Jet is, like, melting. And then there's a fun image of Bick, like, knocking over all these shelves, (laughs) which kind of do a Domino's thing. And full of bourbon. Yes. I I waste. I wept. It's also, was, can we talk about that cat that real quick, there's like a cat that runs what through is with when they cat? enter this storage room that really feels like someone backstage just like kicked this cat and it yes. runs through as quick. And I'm like, that that was a case where George Stevens should have done a couple more takes because it looks so bizarre. I can't imagine that's what he was actually going for. I just for. think he must have been like, that's a cool one. I like the cat because he, can, he can't control it. <laughs> anyway, so I like that this moment, there's a moment that follows it where everyone's kind of cooling off in the hotel room and Dennis Hopper is ready to like move on and go deal with this sort of like hurricane follow-up back in the village of Biendecito. And I forget how the argument starts, but Vic is like, what do you mean I'm not progressive? He doesn't use the word progressive. He says, what do you mean? I I stood up for you. Dennis Hopper kind of takes him to task and is like, no, you didn't stand up or you didn't stand up for Juana. You just stood up because your son had been embarrassed publicly. Mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. And we can feel the way that this sort of leads to the scene in the diner where he then, as you observed, Caroline, he stands up not just for his own family, but for strangers. But I do think we see him making slow progress through the movie, but we're never really given a Bick is fully good now on this score way. And again, I, I agree that it is one of those things about the movie that feels really honest. I think he's such an interesting character because I so want to hate him all the way through it. Mm. And yet 
you get just enough of him like trying, kind of like clearly fighting through like so much programming and so many old toxic habits and prejudices. Mm-hmm. But in a lot of ways, you know, you can sense that it is because of his investment in his family, particularly with Leslie. I mean, the early times when I'm like, wow, her husband is such a such a sexist, racist shit. But then they keep having these like heart to hearts. I'm like, why do I come out of this scene like feeling for him? Mm-hmm. Or like it's so well written. It's really so well written. Yeah, I think you're right. Yeah. And in addition to being well-written, I think some of the visuals that they come up with, like particularly the scene where Leslie and Vic have sort of like temporarily separated. She's gone back home to her family. There's a wedding and you kind of feel like this is a make or break moment. Like, are they going to get divorced? Mm -hmm. And then he shows up and they reunite completely silently. Like he's, there's a shot of the crowd. Rock Hudson, who's a six foot four giant is like heads, (laughs) heads above everyone else what ends up walking around there's like this gorgeous shot of him behind elizabeth taylor and their whole reunion is just completely silent and i think it is that balance of like sometimes this movie is so thoughtful verbally and you know overtly and then sometimes it's so smart and it's just sort of like subtleties and visuals and it's sort of that combination and maybe that's a combination you only get if your movie is three hours and 21 minutes long and you have time to do both but i just feel like that i don't know i just love that scene that sequence is beautiful Yes. Like, oh, everything about that sequence is beautiful mm-hmm. from like how they are framed to just what each of them is doing with their faces like mm-hmm. elizabeth taylor leslie senses i think mm-hmm. that someone is behind her and she keeps like moving her head to see who could be there and that happens for like a minute mm-hmm. yeah. <laughs> we take so much time until finally she turns around and she realizes that it's him and like that moment is gorgeous so and gorgeous. we haven't really talked about this at all but there's also like the very long funeral sequence mm-hmm. and that also is really beautifully shot and mm-hmm. I normally am not one for like a lot of like flag flag waving America stuff but like that is also incredibly evocative and beautiful and sort of fits again with this sort of like we're gonna do a western but it's gonna be more thoughtful about mm-hmm. like who are the people who have died defending this country and its ideals yeah mm-hmm. and so I don't know just like I don't know man there's just a lot of beauty to be found and how it fits into things that you think about this genre and how it purposefully subverts them both Mm -hmm. in character and in imagery yeah Yeah. there is so much in this movie just to unpack like oh it's just so good again I'm so mad I haven't spent (laughs) more time watching it if I can kind of be the tiebreaker here on the Dean performance I actually feel like I'm slightly more with Ned on this I am into the older Dean if anything I was slightly less into the younger Dean, maybe just because hmm. I had seen, I mean, not visually, visually, there's a scene where he's wearing like a shirt that is like has two buttons buttoned at the bottom. And I was like, <laughs> this should it's, be illegal. Like this during, is wild. <laughs> it's during the tea scene because he is like getting the tea ready. And I'm just like, oh, there's like a lot of like chest, golden chest. <laughs> it's unreal. Also, there was a guy Perfect. on the last season of The Bachelor named Connor, or The Bachelorette named Connor B, who similarly would always wear his shirts Connor. low. And unfortunately, that is also what I thought of while watching this scene. I was like, Connor B, you've invaded my head. Connor B. Um, anyway, I'm in every way visually into young James Dean in this movie. I do think on some of his younger scenes, this was the first time where we've watched one of his performances. And I was like, okay, buddy, can you enunciate a little more? Like, yes, I get you're doing fair. your method acting thing, but I kind of need a little, I 
want you to fit the tone that's what that is around you a little bit better. Like he was feeling like he was sometimes standing out in a bad way. I agree. Not, I think all of his scenes with Taylor are great, but sometimes when there was more of a group scene or in some of his scenes with Hudson, he was, he was feeling like he was not fitting in to the tone of the movie in a way that it was interesting to watch, I guess, but not like satisfying. But then when we got into the older jet, I was wildly impressed by James Dean's physicality as the older man. Like the way he walks is entirely different. Like as young jet, he's very lanky and he's wandering around and, you know, his his arms and legs are going everywhere. It's all very casual. And then as both an older and a much richer character, he's like stiff and his posture is very straight and he still has like a social awkwardness to him, but it manifests entirely differently. And I think this movie actually made me realize that if I, if there is a through line for, for these three films we've covered, it's that I think Dean's greatest strengths as an actor are his physicality. Like, I think the moments I remember are not as much the, his dialogue scenes, his explosive dialogue scenes. It's like the moment in Rebel Without a Cause where he kisses uh, Natalie Wood on the head or he leans on a car in a really unexpected way or this the scene in Giant where he's you know, counting out the steps and climbing the windmill or so much of the physicality in East of Eden. Like, I think he was a wildly impressive physical actor and using physicality to convey character in a way that I think for as wonderful as Rock Hudson and especially Elizabeth Taylor are in this movie, they're giving very different styles of performances. And I would not think the physicality is the thing I would highlight of their performances. And I think that's Mm -hmm. one of the things that does make Dean so unique for this era is that was sort of like a whole different style of performance that feels like electric i think he's a very good drunk yeah like he definitely wow yes even more but he's a very good drunk and i ned i loved what you said when sort of Vic takes him in the back to be like you fucked around with my son or whatever and you described it as him melting like that's mm. a perfect way to describe that like dean is sort of like stuck in one place you can tell that he like the character really needs that wall to be able mm-hmm. to lean and like hold himself up and then to eventually somehow get himself out of the cellar and back into the banquet hall like everything feels very labored mm-hmm. and especially like you said like in contrast to like his openness and sort of flexibility malleability of before as he's like striding around his land mm-hmm. that is a very good contrast and i think elizabeth taylor becomes more physical in her performances sure as time passes by like I think Cat on a Hot Tin Roof she is great in that and it's a yeah very that's a good performance call. but absolutely like Dean is the one who is doing that now and I feel like so many not so many actors but I feel like there are certain actors working now who mimic that a lot like I think Brad Pitt leans on totally. things in a very Brad like, Pitt James loves a Dean way. He loves something he can have his and, hands on. And full yeah. body stuff. Yeah. yeah, full body movement. And I feel like, again, sorry, but I think Leo does that in Once sure. Upon a Time in Hollywood. It feels very yes. different from how he has mm-hmm. acted before. Um, So like Dean's legacy, I think, from all of his movies, but I think from Giant in particular, just has like reverberated. Mm-hmm. There's this little moment when he is in the car at the sort of barbecue where he just like puts his legs up like one at a time. And I just was staring at the way he moved his legs. I was like, this guy was so in control of his body, of his mm-hmm. instrument, as, you, as some might say. It was just like this guy. I had the same thought watching this that I was like, this is a top tier physical performer in a way that I kind of sense like 
the like the really really physical the role that was designed to use that physicality sadly may have still been out there for him right mm. like like there was there's yeah. some alternate timeline movie that we got of his there's some alternate timeline where we got a movie from him that really allowed him to tap into his physical control even more than he does in these three. But I agree that in these three, in a way that, as you say, Caroline, it's probably iconic line deliveries that are most notably his legacy. You're tearing me apart! Exactly. Yeah. But, but watching them, I agree, it is really cool to see how much... And it really, it really occurred to me for the first time with all of these insane stunts that he does in East of Eden, just running mm-hmm. up this ramp and climbing down this Ferris wheel and being like, oh, the guy was clearly down to use his body. Mm-hmm. He also took a lot of dance classes, I think. There's an oh. incredible photo from the set of Giant, which is... James Dean and Elizabeth Taylor, both in like ballet outfits, like James Dean's in like tights and shirtless. And they're both doing like a ballet leap. And it's incredible. I'll put it on our Twitter account because it's incredible. And then there's other photos of him like in dance classes, like with Eartha Kitt. And I was going to say, isn't that the threesome story? Yes, yes, yes. Yeah, yeah. Yeah. Oh, we so, can't wrap this episode up without you telling me what the threesome <laughs> Ned, story is. No, like I never, I've never famed, heard of it. This is like the famed threesome to end all threesomes. I mean, that's why I don't. <laughs> I want to know. <laughs> this is the famed threesome to end all threesomes. It's Dean. Uh huh. Eartha. Wow. And pre-marriage Paul Newman. Shut up. <laughs> yes. <laughs> I did not think that's where that was going. Wow. Yeah, I don't. I don't remember. Was it Eartha? That said that, Carol, and I want to say it was, but I can't quite remember. Yeah, that's but tastiest that's, if she yeah. spilled that tea. Holy yeah. moly. Again, wood smash. So, oh man, yeah. slide, it's the only, it's like right maybe the there. only trio Good that's Lord. more attractive than the Hudson Taylor Dean trio of yeah, Giants. Yeah, it's like, dear God. Oh my God. Eartha <laughs> Kitt and Paul Newman. Holy, right? Like a moly. Wow. Yeah. Yeah. One thing I wanted to, re- you know, a lot of times at the end of these series, we'll sort of recommend other work the actor has done. Obviously, we we don't have other films for Dean, but there is this really great PBS American Masters like episode, sort of episodic documentary. It's called James Dean Sense Memories. It's only an hour long. It's right, at least right now, it's up in like parts on YouTube. That's where I watched it. It's just like a look at sort of these, mainly these three films and sort of his life, but there are interviews with all these people who knew him, like Martin Lando and Eli Wallach and Eartha Kitt is in it. It's what made me think of this. And, you know, just like telling stories about what it was like in the 1950s and what Dean was like and, and affectionately, but also sort of, you know, saying the ways in which he could be, you know, a material figure at times. Yeah. Yes, yes. And they find very like, I don't know, sweet ways to phrase it, but I would really recommend that James Dean sense memories. And one thing that this documentary really made me realize was that in these three directors he worked with, you had Kazan, who I think in their relationship sort of treated him in a fatherly way in terms of like keeping him in check in a way, which works really well for East of Eden, which is a father-son story. You had Nicholas Ray, who seemed sort of more obsessed with like being his peer, even though Nicholas Ray was like way older than him. But he always wanted to like hang around with all the kids and get to know them. And I think that really bleeds into the, you know, the tone of Rebel Without a Cause. And then you have George Stevens, who had this very antagonistic relationship with him, which very much feeds into Jet being sort of the antagonistic, sympathetic, but the antagonistic figure within Giant. So I thought that was fascinating how those directors kind of paralleled Hmm. the films that they made. And similar to you, Ned, I was 
you know, there's something poignant about this being Dean's last film because we weirdly do get to see him as an old man, even if it is a made up old man. But I also was like, I, you know, in a world in which he lived, I wonder if this would have been sort of like a turning point for him where he had started doing different kind of work. As you said earlier, Roxana, this is moving beyond just young rebellious character. It feels like this could have been a launching point for, for something else entirely, but sadly it was not to be, but still just wild that Dean is still as famous now as he was in 1956. Any last quick hits from Giant we want to shout out before we, we kind of wrap things up here? I, I want to wear every outfit that Elizabeth Taylor wears in this movie. Yeah. Every costume is better than the last. Yeah, I don't, I don't know. I mean, I think there's just so much to say about it as an American epic that actually feels very self-aware. Mm-hmm. I don't know. I just think everything about it is perfect. <laughs> I'm sort of in that boat as well. Like I was really, yeah. not that I expected not to like it. I just didn't expect to like it this much I guess yeah I can understand that and yes shout out to Elizabeth Taylor's outfits in particular the like brown off-shoulder dress she wears when Mm. she tells all the good old boys to fuck off Mm -hmm. that I mean she was a woman like my (laughs) god I love the like pants like pants and then a sort of button-down shirt with stripes Yes. And or... her hips are unreal. <laughs> unreal. Wow, she yeah. had two children? Like, yeah. what the hell? And one I not know. that long before they started filming, I don't think. Unbelievable. I mean, yeah. yes. Wow. Okay. A scene that I wanted to shout out that mm-hmm. made me very uncomfortable, but I thought was great. And to be, you know, just to be totally clear on where I was earlier, when I say like not a warm blanket, I'm not saying as a fault of this movie, but I would say I said, oh no, a lot in this in a way that I think we did during uh, <laughs> totally, to totally be episode. But the Ned, scene I compl- where he... Sorry, if I can go on a tangent for one second, because I completely understand what you're saying. I recently heard someone say that Catch Me If You Can is one of their favorite comfort watches. And I'm like, I... That I love that movie. I'll watch it anytime. <laughs> I find that movie to be one of the most emotionally stressful movies ever made. And hearing someone describe it as a comfort watch, I was like, we're on different paths. So I completely understand. You can like a movie, enjoy a movie, not necessarily find it comforting. Uh, a comfort watch for mm-hmm. me that is incredibly not comforting is Fincher's Girl with the Dragon Tattoo. Ooh, I have I no actually... idea why I find it comforting. That and Zodiac. I don't Takes know what sorts. it is. I oh, actually wow. kind of agree that Fincher is weirdly comforting in his yeah. murderous darkness. I think it's because I think it's the like precision of the technique I find mm. very comforting. Like feel Zodiac, taken care of. In yeah, those like Zodiac is incredibly horrible to watch. And yet like every other night at 8 30, I'm like, well, I guess it's <laughs> I guess I need something to watch. And I guess that's Zodiac. <laughs> but Ned, Man. please, what scene? Yeah. Oh, well, I think I think a lot of times if we talk about great ex- like examinations of toxic masculinity in film, it's going to be looking at moments of really open hostility. But the scene in which Bick takes his four-year-old miserable crying son on a forced little oh like God. ride around on a horse and all the party goers are looking at it with these looks of like, man, give it a rest. But they like, but they can't say, you know, there's like nothing they can say. And the kid is miserable and crying and you can feel Bic, like feel it in his heart that like, it's not working and he's done something bad, but he like, can't even fully accept it. Mm-hmm. I just like, I- I've never seen, I think so. I think that is one of the most incredible little looks of the way in which like masculinity is such a trap mm-hmm. that I've ever seen on film. I thought that was so powerful and great. And it's those little moments like that that just feel like moments in a life that I think 
do make this movie a really great examination of of all those issues in mm-hmm. a way. It's it's you know it's it's sometimes it's in little moments of botched compassion or misguided impulse that we really see things come out. It's an advantage of this movie, not just that it's runtime is long, but that the time it's covering in its story is so long. Cause I think it makes yes. such an interesting contrast. You have that really poignant early scene where Leslie, she's like, you know, I'm, I'm 25. Like I want to do more with my life. And like in 25 years, I'm going to be 50. And like my life's over. And, and, you know, somebody who's older in her life is sort of trying to be like, well, no, but you'll have like lived so much life. You'll still have, you know, you'll have a beautiful perspective on the world then. And her from her 25 year old point of view is like, you know, like there's no way I will. <laughs> I will get anything out of that experience. And then we actually get to see her, you know, when she is in her fifties and sort of what in her life has been good and what has been bad and the compromises that have been made, but a lot of joy along the way and negotiation. And again, this is exactly what I love about this is us. Like (laughs) the same thing that giant is delivering to me. There, I guess just two last things I want to say in terms of that, like what the movie is doing narratively. Something I love is that like we skip over their wedding we mm-hmm. skip over her pregnancies. Mm-hmm. We skip over their childhood. And I really respect that. I like that it felt like the movie didn't waste narrative time on those things that you expect to be drama drivers or tension drivers. Like you would think like, oh, how's her pregnancy going to go? Like, yeah. that's, I, you know, I appreciate that we don't spend the time with that. And instead we get a lot of conversation and a lot mm-hmm. of just like, the family talking to each other and trying to understand who is this person that I married or who is this person that is my child. Mm-hmm. Um, like, I love that the movie does that. And also to Ned's point, I feel like we've talked a lot about how great like Elizabeth Taylor and of course Dean are, but Rock Hudson is great. Like, yes. I, I feel like we didn't talk about that, but like, he is wonderful just as like a lot of man. And mm-hmm. as Ned has said, like a man who thinks that there is only one way to be a man but who opens himself up enough to change. And like we said, he doesn't have like a, he's 100% good final moment, but like every scene of this movie, I think it's him giving a little bit of himself Mm -hmm. um, and growing into somebody different. And I just, I really think that Rock Hudson is beautiful in those moments. And I Mm -hmm. just, I don't know. I, I just, I, I just find it very evocative and very good. Yeah. He's great. He got an Oscar nom for this though. I think it was his first and maybe only one. Um, James Dean was also nominated posthumously. I think egregiously Elizabeth Taylor was not nominated. Although I think the Oscars then realized that too, because they nominated her for like the next five years in a row or something. <laughs> <laughs> so I like we, to think they were like, oh, we shit, fumbled we the bag have, uh... on giant. <laughs> Yeah. Um, the movie gets 10 Oscar nominations in general. Stevens is the only win for director and it's a big critical hit commercial hit. It was like one of Warner brothers highest grossing films for decades. Yeah. And sort of a major turning point, I think both for, for Elizabeth Taylor and for rock Hudson really does sort of bring them to bigger stardom. I really, I will say, I, I just like love rock Hudson in his Doris day comedy so much. I love comedy rock Hudson that <laughs> maybe that's like slightly taking precedent over drama rock Hudson but I mean he is great and the height is like played to such great advantage in this movie it's like the same Lee Pace height I'm like that's a oh lot. my god yeah it's a lot Entirely. of body and I like it yeah and I, yeah. I think so many of the sort of thematic things we've talked about about trying to slowly take things on board but not being able fully to do it because of things you're already too powerfully steeped in so much of that is only possible because of this line that he walks 
mm-hmm. and the like you sense an inner like core of goodness in him and that makes a lot of it possible he also plays it as you don't get the sense that Vic is either you know academically or emotionally the smartest person in the world and that sort of makes his flaws a little more forgivable because it feels like he's sort of learning and maturing along the way mm-hmm. striving in a way that that I get I guess Jet is as well I I just am like a real sucker and this is like my own fatal flaw I'm a real sucker of like white men trying to be better movies <laughs> I don't know why that is but again it's sort of like well isn't my... it kind of the dream to yeah just like thank you you're actually trying to like make a difference in the world um but I think that he is just you know I think everything truly in this movie revolves around his character mm-hmm. it's just that like Taylor and Dean and everybody else are also so magnetic but like everything is really around Vic and Mm -hmm. I just think he provides the stability that the film needs that allows everybody else to go off and do these other complementary things that make the movie better the structure is kind of unique in that it I kind of feel like the first half is really Elizabeth Taylor's movie and you sort of assume or at least I assumed that would be the 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 case the whole way but the second half where the kids really come into the picture more really fully becomes Vic's movie and you sort of Mm -hmm. it's like, like a baton handoff or I don't know, maybe she had done her part in the first half to sort of shape his narrative. And then it gets passed on to the children and the relationship with Jordy in particular to shape the second half of his narrative. Man, what a great movie. Yeah. But uh, do we all agree? Watch Giant. Watch <laughs> yeah. Giant. Even though it's long. Th- I think that's what put me off it for so long. Like I right. get it. It The thought of just like, oh, it's a Thursday afternoon. I'll put on a three and a half hour long movie. could feel daunting. But like, don't we all watch four episodes of a TV show in one sitting? Like we can do it with movies. This is very episodic. There's some, there might be not be a literal intermission, but there's plenty of time jumps in there. You can just pause, pretend it's an episode of TV. Get <laughs> come back, back come it. back. Yeah. I think it's jumped up past East of Eden in my ranking of these movies, mm-hmm. just as movies. Although okay. it can't overtake Rebel without a cause, which I, it's just so I think right up my alley thematically. But I think, yeah, you've sold me on a lot of, uh, powerful merit to this movie and i think i'm really looking forward because it's so much to take in i'm really looking forward to re-watching it when i get to that although it's probably not going to be this year <laughs> it's not happening the in the next week so or so good is the production design i just to shout that out like the shout out victorian mansion in the middle of like a texas desert basically what a which vision is so surreal and mm-hmm. then the way the house evolves along with the characters as they age and they get grass in their front yard and they get a pool out back and all of a sudden we cut to the interiors and before it had been very Victorian in its aesthetic. And now it's, you know, complete 1950s style in the interior. And you're like, wow, so much time has passed. Like they have really lived so much of a life over the course of this movie. Something just the last detail I'll say that I find very thoughtful is Leslie asking like, is Texas green? And him being like, no, not at all. But then her costumes, when she gets there, are often green like she has like the green plaid blouse Mm -hmm. like the first day when she's like putting Luz in her place and then the terrible failed pony ride she's wearing like this beautiful green cutout dress and then for Bix party it's another shade it's almost like sort of like a soft like pear green Mm -hmm. but I love that she is always this character who is trying to bring like verdant growth to this place that seems Mm. stuck in time good observation yeah Yeah. and then the it's such a lovely payoff at the end when 
I don't know. He has that line where it's like, oh, you're not going to go home, are you? And she's like, buddy, this is my home. Like, right, I've lived I'm here home. for 30 years. Come on, man. Yeah. It was yeah. such a funny, I kind of, I've heard people say that before, or I'm sure I've said that before. Like I'll refer to like my home, you know, my childhood home or whatever. You can have multiple homes that are places that feel like home, but it is funny that he has not had this realization that yeah. she has committed to being a Texas woman and she is here to stay. And uh, I think it's a runner. Is Is it in the script that when she, when they take their break, She's like, she says, I think I'm I, going home. Aww, yeah. She says, I'm going to take really the kids nice. for a home. Yeah. And then, yeah, so like, this is kind aren't of... you home now? Yeah. So it's like a callback to. Yeah. Uh, yeah. That's mm. really nice. Really Ugh. nice. What a good movie. Yeah. Good movie. It feels like there. Yeah. We could, we could go for another hour and a half easily. I mean, we could probably go longer than the movie itself, but alas, Certainly. we'll have to, do, again, as we always say, I feel like when, as we did with The Prestige, when there's a movie where we feel like we have more to say, like when we go around and do our Elizabeth Taylor series, I vote we <laughs> revisit this. We'll have Roxanne on again. We'll like look at the movie even more explicitly from her point of view. That's how I yeah. justify not yeah. like talking through everything. Yes, scene. to really do a Wesley, a Wesley's POV. <laughs> a Wesley yeah. deep dive. Um, so that's basically a wrap on Dean. Um, as we said before, he's got all that TV stuff out there. So if you are a Dean super fan, I would highly recommend going on YouTube and just like, I don't know, search James Dean TV movies. Like there's a bunch of them out there. If you just want to see more of his performance performances, it's kind of fun to do that. Um, and it's also funny how, even though he is the third lead of this movie, like if you look at the Blu-ray cover, it's just a giant picture of his face. And then tiny yeah, Elizabeth weird. Taylor and Rock Hudson. Like I yeah. think part of the legacy of this movie, because Dean's legacy is so massive, this movie is very much remembered as his movie, even though everyone in this movie is wonderful. I mean, again, put Dennis Hopper's face on that <laughs> DVD and it would be equally justified. But yeah, I guess that's a wrap on Dean. Ned, this has been weird to just do three movies. A short little series. Yeah, but, a short uh, little series. I'll be I'll be sad to let him go as we always are. But do you want to introduce the star of our next retrospective series? Oh, yes. And just as I was eight episodes ago, I haven't prepped anything. Um, <laughs> but uh, but we'll do it live. Okay, we'll do it live. Um, we are going to talk about an actor who I have been excited to discuss since we started doing this podcast at all. Um, someone who I think you know, I feel like I've uh, I've I've become aware recently of the the designation of a uh, he's a that guy actor. People like uh, Stephen Tobolowski, who plays the antagonist teacher in Freaky Friday. You know, there's people who are just like <laughs> his most important credit. Oh, that guy. Yeah, it's like a lot of people would recognize the face, but not the name. And I feel like this next actor is sort of on the verge of being a that guy actor for some people. Kind of like in a lot of movies. I guess that's just a way of saying plays a lot of supporting roles, but. He should not just be that guy. It is time to give some shine, give some attention to someone who I think is just absolutely electric every time he's on screen. And that is Jeffrey Wright. If you don't recognize that name, just pop up IMDb. I can, I will bet you five bucks that you've seen something he's in. Yeah. I think Westworld oh, has yeah. done a lot to, to help transition his, mm-hmm. his profile to, to out of a, that guy and into Jeffrey Wright, respected thespian. But you know, it's Bond. Like, I think Bond. Mm-hmm. He's in Bond. Mm-hmm. He's in Hunger Games too. So yeah. you know, if you saw one of those things, Manchurian Candidate. Uh huh. Yeah. So look, I mean, hey, you don't got to tell me. He's got loads of good credits, <laughs> but I am. I I feel like there's still some. He doesn't have maybe the immediate name recognition that the four actors we've discussed so far have, and and you know, we haven't been talking about. Uh, I think the starriest of stars, but I'm super psyched to get into it uh, with Jeffrey Wright. I mean, as you're saying, Jeffrey Wright's much more of a character actor. So I think it'll be a new 
format for our series, but I am super excited to do that. Um, Roxana, thank you so much for joining us and for bringing your Dean perspective, those bringing those posters back into the the light for us and particularly your um, giant perspective. Uh, Where can people find you? And is there anything in particular you'd like to plug? Oh, well, thank you guys for having me. I, you know, it was very fun to talk about a movie that I've loved for a lot of my life and that has particular poignancy for me right now. You can find my stuff at Pajiba, the AV Club, Polygon, Roger Ebert, Vulture, every so often, Crooked Marquee, I don't know, anywhere on the internet that will tolerate my presence. <laughs> you're covering, you said you're covering Why the Last Man right now? Yeah, Sorry. and I would say that would be something I would um, ask, you know, if you're watching Why the Last Man on FX on Hulu, I am recapping that for the AV Club. And then um, uh, starting with Succession season three, I will also be recapping that for the AV Club. Oh, Hell oh yeah. Sweet. I cannot wait to read those. And Why yeah. Last Man when I get around to watching that. But yes, very yeah. exciting. Yeah. So thank you so much. Yeah. Do you want to point people to your, your Twitter as well? Oh, yeah. It's R-O-X-A-N-A underscore H-A-D-A-D-I. Uh, it is like 80% thirst tweets and... <laughs> 20% yelling about politics. So. Which you say is a negative and I think is solely a positive. You're a great totally. Twitter follower. We'll link to your stuff in our show notes. Um, but truly you were such, you were, it was so wonderful to get to chat with you about this movie. And thank you for really? having watched it longer than, you know, a day or two ago, isn't it? And I both happened to have done for this series. Thank you. Um, all right. That's a wrap on Dean and Roll Calling is produced and recorded by us, Caroline Sita and Ned Baker. Our theme music was created by Patrick Buddy and our logo was designed by Nick Wansarski. You can follow us on Twitter. We are at Roll Calling or you can also email us. We're rollcalling at gmail.com. That's roll spelled R-O-L-E. We will be back next time to kickstart our Jeffrey Wright series. Until then. Come on, partner. Why don't you kick off your spurs? <laughs>